You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Well, this was an honor. Um, so many of the academics that I interview for this podcast who, who become friends, um, they have a, a guy in common that they all admire, and his name is Max Bazerman. Uh, he is the Jess Isidore Strauss Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. And he's the author of many books, including Blind Spots, Why We Fail to Do What's Right and What to Do About It, with Anne Trenbrunzel. Uh, His new book is called Complicit, how we enable the unethical and how to stop. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Max Bazerman, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be with you, Kelly. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, you note in the book that for over 2,000 years, ethics was primarily the domain of philosophers, but that today, the scholars teaching and re- researching ethics tend to be behavioral scientists working in business schools. How did that happen? I think that for too long, business schools avoided the topic of ethics. Mm-hmm. And then a firm called Enron collapsed in 2001, and Arthur Anderson um played an important role in allowing Enron to collapse. Yep. And the world said to business schools, what are you going to do about these people who you're training, who obviously have problems on the ethical front? And the people who responded with answers were um, a, a variety of behavioral scientists who focused on the psychology of why pretty good people still do some pretty bad things on a regular basis without even being aware that you're doing that. And I think that this new world of behavioral ethics took hold and it was closer to, it was easier to come up with prescriptions 
about how to respond to the ethical crises of our time from a behavioral perspective than from the more normative perspective that philosophers had offered over the last 2,500 years. At the same time, I want to highlight that I learn a great deal from reading philosophy. Yeah. And I find many contemporary philosophers like Josh Green and Peter Singer to be critical to how I think about the world. But I, I think that the philosophers um, had, had been too limited in providing a normative standard, and they really needed some behavioral insights about how people actually think about um, ethical issues. And that came more from the hands of psychologists and behavioral scholars within business schools. So Second City has a sort of a weird segue into the world of ethics in that uh, years ago, um, uh, a bunch of companies who were doing ethics and compliance training were realizing that their employees were sort of checking the box. And mm-hmm. so we actually created a whole business line of short, funny videos that highlight the ethic in play. Um, and so that their, their, their hope is that at least if they're laughing, they're going to connect to something and maybe remember it more next time they get offered like, you know, a fancy dinner that they're not supposed to accept. That sounds just terrific. I, I think that we need ways to convey the importance of ethics in ways that people will remember, not five minutes later, but a week or a month or a year later when right. they're actually confronted with an ethical crisis. So identifying ways to make the message is um, um, salient and to truly get people's attention, I think is part of the challenge of what we're trying to do on the ethics front. Yeah. And you opened the book talking about McKinsey, the global management consulting firm who began selling advice to Purdue Pharma in 2004. And essentially at the same time, McKinsey was selling advice to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about how to strengthen its regulation of pharma. That that doesn't seem right. <laughs> Um, I think that there was a lot wrong with that story. Yeah. Um, I think that McKinsey was giving um, Purdue advice on how to turbocharge their sales, including how to get patients to take higher doses that were going to be even more addictive. And oh. they did this at the same time that they were um, giving advice to the FDA about how to regulate pharma. Um, they appeared to have failed to disclose to the FDA their conflict of interests. Um, and they ended up paying a, a fine of $573 million to 47 states as a, as a result of their behavior. And unfortunately, this is not the lone instance of McKinsey providing pretty destructive advice. If any of the folks listening on this, uh, podcast have ever had trouble with collecting a fair claim on when, when they made a claim to their insurance company, um, they might be interested in knowing that, that insurance claim agents used to view their job as a profession that it required integrity. But at some point, Allstate hired McKinsey, um, who helped turn the claims department into a profit center, where the norm became the less you pay, the more profitable you are. Um, and um, they were so successful that lots of other insurance companies went to McKinsey and said, can you help us with reducing how much money we spend on claims as well? Truly transforming this industry in a way that many of us have experienced as dysfunctional over the last few decades. So literally this morning, I'm listening to NPR and Stevens Keep is doing an interview with this like insurance guys, like with some consortium. And you're talking about the flooding that happened. Mm-hmm. And they says, so so these people have insurance for flooding. He's like, oh, no, 
the flood, the flooding isn't isn't covered. And he said roofs are, but none of the flooding. And these are areas where there's flooding all the time. I mean, it, it, that seems like a classic thing where they they measured the market and decided, oh no, if we if we you know uh, uh, cover flooding, we're gonna have to do all these payouts. So they just don't do it. Yes, and and we have to be a little bit fair to insurance companies. It, it doesn't make sense for insurance companies to pay for things that they never insured to begin with. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it's the insurance company's responsibility to be transparent and clear with homeowners on the front end when they're buying the policy, and then fair as they respond to claims on the back end when claims actually are made. So I know what I thought was a fair amount about the Sacklers and 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 Purdue, um, but I didn't know that the history of well, you say in the book quote the history of Purdue, Purdue's mismarketing of OxyContin dates to the 1950s. Yeah, so Arthur Sackler, um, who founded um, the who founded the Sackler entrance into the pharmaceutical industry, which led them, uh, the, the Sack, uh, three Sackler brothers to buy Purdue and then transform it. But Arthur Sackler was a master at advertising pharmaceuticals and ways that created lots of the ingredients for what we now see as misrepresentation, um, and basic area practices that lead customers to not be obtaining the best medical advice, but responding to advertising as we think of it in lots of other areas. So while a lot of us would like to think that when we go to our doctor, we tell them what's wrong, the doctor is focused on giving us the very best medicine for whatever ails us. Too often, there have been a variety of practices to influence doctors um, to um, prescribe the drug of a particular pharmaceutical firm rather than going through the more complicated task of thinking, what does this patient actually need? Um, and the degree to which pharmaceutical firms spend money um, to buy to bias the judgment of physicians is truly extraordinary. And a lot of that really goes back to the... Um, the unfortunate insights of Arthur Sackler many, many decades ago. Yeah, we literally have a library that's just this topic, which is just it's can you uh, can you tell our audience what a pill mill is? That's something I'd never heard of. Sure. A, a physician who has very lax standards for writing a prescription, for example, for opioids. And um, there are just examples that go along with the opioid crisis. Um including a Donald Kaiser, who I describe in the book, um, who is prescribing prescriptions at a shocking um, rate, at a rate that doesn't, that doesn't allow for actually talking to patients in any detail to know what ails them. And um, Donald Kaiser was, had his license removed in West Virginia, so he moved across um, the border to Ohio and continued his, his, um, opioid writing business and basically provided shuttle services for his, his prior, um, patients in West Virginia who would take a shuttle to come pick up their opioids, um, through his pill mill operation. So pill mills basically refer to physicians who are focused on collecting fees in, unfortunately, in some other cases, other, um, 
um, inappropriate payments, including sexual favors, um, in order to write pills at, a, at an amazing rate. And, and, and part of the Purdue story, I mean, it's not just McKinsey, but it's the pill mills, it's pharmacies who were fulfilling prescriptions at levels that they knew um, customers couldn't possibly use, um, to Walmart, who didn't allow um, their the the folks providing the pills to do the appropriate checks on the patients that looked for them, to the three very large distributors that exist in the U.S. who distribute um, large quantities. Uh, about 90% of the medicines that are distributed in the U.S. and have a responsibility to check for appropriate usage. Um, all of these parties were complicitors, along with Richard Sackler and the rest of the Sackler family um, that was involved in the Purdue pharmaceutical operations and allowing the opioid crisis to get so far out of control. Yeah, and specifically to give our audience an idea of the scope of this, the Save Right in Kermit, West Virginia, which is a population of 209 in, in 2000, in 2005 dispensed an average of 54,000 opioid pills a day. And, and yes, it's a stunning figure. And, and I want to give credit to Eric Eyre, uh, E-Y-R-E, who wrote um, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book um, documenting what happened in the West Virginia part of this opioid story. He just does a great job. And my information on uh, Dr. Kaiser and on Save, uh, Save Right Pharmacy uh, really comes from Eric's fantastic work. So I want to talk to you about collaboration in the sense that Second City is well-known and gets hired by a lot of businesses to collaborate. We pride ourselves on, on our ability to collaborate, um, but collaboration can sometimes have a darker side that you explore in the book as well. Yeah, so um, obviously I'm not against collaboration. I collaborate with lots of wonderful people. Um, my career has, has been built on co-authored work with lots of fantastic scholars. Um, so it, um, I'm not, so I'm not using the term collaborate um, in its general use, but closer to um, collaborators in the way we think about Nazi collaborators, people who were willing to make trade-offs, not not necessarily because they shared the vision of the of the core evildoer, but because they were willing to make trade-offs in order to get what they wanted. So Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham may not be white supremacists, and they might not believe in an authoritarian government, but they were willing to empower Donald Trump in order to help get the selections to the Supreme Court that they wanted. So I think of collaborators not as true partners who share the vision of the evildoer, but people who are willing to make trades. I also think about um, uh, the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal, where yeah. Volkswagen clearly was sending emissions into the air um, by lying about um, how their diesel engines operated, um, um, killing um, just large numbers of people through the pollution that were created and, and, and stealing money from, uh, from so many customers who were buying these fraudulently marketed products. Um, but it's clear that Volkswagen had the support of the unions, um, and they had the support of the lower Saxony government who basically continued to look the other way as Volkswagen engaged in one unethical action after another. 
And I think when these other organizations who are supposed to represent workers and are supposed to represent the public go along with Volkswagen to have a politically friendly environment under, under any circumstance, they become collaborators in the evil that Volkswagen, um, um, uh, um, pushed upon so many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated and found it uh, a tad brave that you, you also examine your own, you know, uh, complicity in different kinds of situations. And the first was this time at the Stanford, I think it was in 1990. Right. And, and, um, uh, you were challenged by a guy named Lee Ross, who's sort of a legend in the psychology department. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So, uh, so Lee Ross is a, was a, a fantastic social psychologist. He passed away recently. Um, and um, I was invited to give the weekly seminar in the Stanford psychology department. And, um, and uh, Lee was um, in charge of introducing me. And uh, my talk was on social comparison processes. And Lee was a professor in psychology, and he had a doctoral student who had recently taken a job in a business school. And business schools in the U.S. pay far better than psychology departments. Mm -hmm. And Lee was already very famous, and his doctoral student received a salary slightly larger than Lee's at the time. And um, and basically, Lee started um started the introduction by saying hopefully max will clarify in his talk on social comparison processes why business school professors get paid better than psychology professors and he asked a question about it and he closed down the session by saying uh thank you max that was a really interesting talk but you never really addressed my question about why business school professors get paid more than psychology departments uh, psychology professors and uh, that evening, there was a follow-up seminar with the social psychology group uh, um, to, to basically follow up on the talk per se. And we spent the, the whole session on Lee's question. Mm -hmm. And at some point, um, Lee, who was quite brilliant, um, made the observation that what really was annoying him wasn't just that I got paid more than I deserved. But I, it didn't even bother me mm. that there was inequity in the system. So while he felt truly poorly treated, it wasn't even on my radar screen. No. And I think that he was, you know, independent of whether I could justify why business school professors get paid more, he clearly had an interesting point that yeah. those who are on the lower end of the, of the bargain, um, are often unhappy. Those who are privileged um, often don't even notice their privilege. And if you had, you know, if if before that incident occurred, if you had called me privileged, I would have thought that was funny because I grew up as a inner city kid who was a ballpark vendor. Um, I, I was far from the stereotypic notion of privileged. But we made it quite clear that in so many ways I am privileged and. And when we when we have advantages, um, earned or unearned, we too easily take them as um, things that we're entitled to rather right. than things that we happen to randomly obtain. So there are many 
many countries in the world with fine universities where psychology professors and business school professors are paid the same. That mm-hmm. isn't true in the United States where market markets dictate wages and business school professors are obtain a, a higher wage. And, and I'm not claiming that I don't earn my money, but I would claim that I'm privileged to be in a world that happens to treat what I do um, in a more favorable way financially. And, um, and, and that evening was such a fascinating evening to have Lee highlight the fact that not only was I privileged, but I had no awareness of it whatsoever. And we can think of so many other ways in which many of us are privileged mm-hmm. and we don't pay attention to that. So I'm curious, did you walk away from the that evening with that sort of moral clarity or did it take like weeks or months? Uh, so so uh, a few different answers to that. Um, okay. I was clearly shaken by the conversation. I was struck by it. I was certainly comfortable uh, sort of talking about market forces and and why the difference existed. So I could intellectualize it, but I was still shaken by the degree to which Lee Ross, a very smart person, had a fundamentally different worldview. And, and Lee, um, and my, uh, Lee and, um, Steve Samuels and, uh, Christina Diekman and I ended up collaborating on a empirical project where we studied exactly this topic that, that when people are on the, on the less fortunate side of the way rewards are allocated, they notice tremendously. And those who are um, arguably overcompensated don't even notice that yeah. um, in terms of um, what's going on around them. And, and, and it was kind of shockingly obvious that I was guilty of that. So, yeah, so I, I was privileged and I was, and I'm sure I was complicit to uh, in, in accepting this um, arguably unethical payment system. Yeah, and I suspect if you interrogated any, I certainly know I've been complicit in, in various situations, which is, it was just so much easier for me to not consider it because in not considering it, I, I didn't have to not take the, you know, chocolate sundae that someone else wasn't going to get. And and what I'm struck by, Kelly, is it's not just you. It's It's all of us. All of us have been complicit in many ways, often without even being aware of our role and allowing the inequity or the harm to occur. Yeah. As Klein often reminds me that future generations are just going to look on at us meat eaters as just the most despicable people. And I don't think he's wrong. Uh, but I, I, I still eat steak. I don't know. You know, there's, it's a choice I make. Yeah. So I think that, I think that that's a good observation. I, I would encourage you to at least eat less steak. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> um, and I think that that's a terrific argument. And by the way, I'm vegan. So I used to be guilty, but, but no longer. You and Ezra, and I, and I know you're right. Um, so a little more, a little more close to home and, and, and serious. Uh, it's the summer of 2021. And you're nearly finished with the first draft of this book when a paper is published titled, quote, evidence of fraud in an influential field experiment about dishonesty, end quote. Can you talk to us about what the original paper claimed and, and what what happened with this? Sure. So th- this is a paper that um, um, came about when um, when Lisa Shu and Francesca Gino and I were working on a set of lab studies that matched what Dan Ariely was talking about in terms of a field experiment um, in an insurance company. And um, both of us 
basically had empirical evidence um so so i so i believed that if you sign a document before filling it out promising to tell the truth you get more honesty than if you sign it after you fill it out which is the more traditional way so if you you can think about a reimbursement request or you could think about your tax form and the argument of the paper which i no longer believe um is that if you sign before you can induce more honesty than the traditional way of signing after and so there were th- there were three studies one field experiment um that 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 Ariely had conducted um that was combined with the work that uh Lisa Shu and Francesca Gino and I worked on and Nina Mazar was added as a fifth author as the two projects came together um and um and when I first saw a combined draft of the paper um I honestly was the one who was critical about a, a variety of details that I didn't think made a lot of sense about the field experiment. And I mm-hmm. asked questions and first I got some unsatisfactory answers. Um, eventually, um, I got what sounded like reasonable answers and, mm-hmm. um, I came to believe the paper and the, the paper basically, um, went to publication um i believe the argument i encouraged other organizations to adopt this practice of signing first and then a number of years later um working with ariella uh, crystal and ashley willens um we basically started a new project which was how to get to people to tell the truth online mm. and um and we wanted an easy solution to how to get people to tell the truth online. So we started with signing first, given its prior success. And we had replication failure after replication failure after replication failure. And after five different failures, we tried to reproduce the original study with a much larger sample size, and that failed as well. So we, we, we asked the original authors to join us. So there were seven of us who w- wrote a paper on the failure to replicate the mm-hmm. original result. So, you know, and, and, and when we failed, you know, I was shocked because I had believed this effect. Yeah. And, um, and we didn't have any good answer for why it failed, but we were, we were no longer convinced that uh, that this was in fact a true effect so we we published our results um but then more than a year later um this post comes up and it highlights not only is this effect does this effect not replicate but the insurance data from the field experiment was never legitimate data to begin with and they provided comprehensive proof that somebody had done inappropriate things with this database. Um, and it wasn't minor error, but it was right. intentional data fraud. And, uh, you know, I looked at the evidence and I thought it was amazingly clear that, um, that they were right. Um, and, uh, and, and with Lisa Shu and Francesca Gino and I, um, submitted a uh, request for retraction, as did Ariella, Ariely and Mazar. Um, but when I look at this episode, you know, you know sort of, I, I, I didn't question my ethicality per se, 
Right. But I question whether or not I had asked enough questions. I question whether I should have looked at the data in more detail. So I, there were hints along the way of things that I was uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. But I think I wanted to believe the paper. And when I got satisfactory explanations, I trusted them. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of academia is built on trust and your collaborators. And yeah. I was complicit by trusting others and not providing sufficient oversight of the work myself. I honestly believe had I spent an hour looking at that database, I would have seen hints that there were problems that would have kept me from wanting to publish it to begin with. But that wasn't the norm. And um, I think that we need to think about how do we create the right balance between trust and integrity to the overall mission of what we're trying to accomplish. So I would, you know, moving forward as an academic, um, I plan on knowing my data better. Yeah. Um, rather than trusting others, um, who might be more skilled than me to take care of the data, um, aspects of the project, um, on their own. Yeah. Cause you never looked at Ariely's data, right? I never looked at the raw data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so clearly, this like and, and Ariely would would be, just to be clear, yeah. Ariely would re- refer to that as the insurance company's data. So, yeah, right, right. so, so, I, at this point, I don't have clarity about who, who engaged who in fraudulent behavior. Right. Um, the data went at some point from the insurance company to Ariely. Um, I, I simply. I'm convinced by the work of the data collada team that published yeah. the evidence that the data was was fraudulent. Um, that 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 the data that we published was not valid data. I mean, you say you're sort of you know haunted by this, um, and I I can just I I, I wonder what you were, you just written this book right? You're with the first draft. Did you know this story had to find its way into the current book that you're working? Yeah. On? So so um so. Uh, this book started with the with the January sixth, two thousand twenty one coup attempt. Yeah, um, that was the prompting event, and it was July when we received the email from the Data Collada team telling us that they would be going to print with evidence that our paper was fraudulent. Um, and um, I thought I was going to provide six profiles of complicity, and this one didn't even quite fit in, so it became a a separate chapter where trust is the basis of acting in a complicit way. Um, so basically the book was 85% drafted when, um, when I realized that there was a need for one more chapter. Yeah. And I think it actually, and, it, it ends up being a really nice chapter in, in terms of you, you presented all this stuff and then you're like, wham, this, this, and I know I'm friends with Francesca and I, Dan's been on the podcast. So I know how important this stuff is for you and people in your world. Yeah. So it's, uh, the, the whole episode has been devastating. Um, yeah. and, and, um, but on the other hand, it seemed completely inappropriate to publish a book on complicity and not talk about my own complicity and what's an important academic story. Yeah. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but a couple of little nuggets from the book that I want to talk about. Um, you say in the book, quote, when attributing blame for scandals, most of us tend to center it on a single explanation, end quote. Um, is that just because it's easier that we don't have to do the mental gymnastics? 
I, I think so. I think that we like, we like nice, simple explanations. And, and, and this idea really goes back to Anne McGill, who's on the faculty at the University of Chicago. I, I believe it was her dissertation work showed that people prefer single source explanations, um, of events. Um, and, um, and I use it to highlight the, the idea that when, if we're going to single source the blame, going after the core harm doer becomes obvious. So one of the, one of the pieces of the book, I, I document, uh, an exercise I, I did with, um, my executive students, um, at the Harvard Business School who had been through a fantastic discussion of Theranos, of the Theranos story where Elizabeth Holmes brings her, um, fraudulent technology to the public uh, for for testing blood and um and the, and in their in their case discussion which was not with me it was in another class they had talked about the role of the board of directors and not providing appropriate oversight of Sunny Bolani who was the president and and Elizabeth Holmes boyfriend at the time of Walgreens who brought the Theranos technology into their stores to be used on actual patients um which provided misdiagnoses um and uh they had been through all these complex explanations and when i then asked the students months later when I was teaching on Zoom to please put in the chat function, their answer to a question, but don't hit send till I hit send so that their answers could be independent. I said, what caused the crisis at Theranos? And the vast majority of them gave me a simple explanation about Elizabeth Holmes' unethical behavior. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly agree that Elizabeth Holmes engaged in truly terrible behavior and that her, her actions, um, are likely to be found to be criminal. We'll, we'll learn more about that, I believe, later this month. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, clearly she was a core harm doer, but there were so many other people who she needed to look the other way for her criminal behavior to go on as long as it did especially and, that board um the, well you could say especially that board or you could think about the executives who brought this technology into Walgreens, oh, Walgreens. to yeah, make yeah, sure yeah. that cv that make sure cvs didn't get it first mm. when they had a consultant working for them saying you shouldn't trust no. this technology and he provided fantastic evidence of why Walgreens shouldn't trust Theranos's technology but they just ignored it um, because they were narrowly focused on a single objective. But but uh, back to your question, the, the critical issue is that we don't look for these complex explanations. We look for a simple explanation. And as a result, we don't pay enough. Either we simply focus on the core harm doer. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I also want to ask you about information escrows. So this is in this chapter about leading broader solutions to complicity. I actually never heard this as a concept, and I'm still not like easy with it. Um, I don't sense that you necessarily are, but can you tell our audience what it is as a, as a, as a concept? Sure. So before I tell you about that concept, uh, let me back up and say, yeah. if if we look at lots of wrongdoers who have been discovered, Mm-hmm. They've often been discovered because 
two or more lower level employees talk to each other That's right. and realize it's not just me, but we ha- we see a common story. So that there's enormous power and the benefit of having social support for your concern about unethical behavior that might be going on around you. Um, so, um, uh, so Ian Ayers and Kate um, Kovic, if, I, if I'm remembering her last That's name right, right um, two legal scholars, um, published an article on the idea of these escrows. Um, and, and it can best be seen in the area of um, sexual assault. And it's easiest to think about it on a college campus, but you can certainly apply this in lots of organizations. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is to provide an opportunity for an individual who has been assaulted to report it to the university, but report it in a way that at least initially no other person will see it. That is, you're reporting it through a computerized system. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll, you end up being contacted when another party reports the same alleged perpetrator for the same alleged act. Hmm. And the idea here is this allows a person who's been sexually assaulted to come forward knowing that they won't be in a he said, she said position all alone, but that they will have an independent observation of someone else who's accusing the same perpetrator. And this idea of information escrows Oh, can can be applied in lots of different contexts, yeah. but we can see how it can provide power to reporting so that you don't have to be afraid of making an accusation where you're the sole person making an accusation against the perpetrator. Yeah, because life for whistleblowers is not normally great. Like just well, life for whistleblowers isn't normally great, and perpetrators end up being repeat perpetrators, yeah. um, and so that creates power to this system. Yeah. Uh, okay. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. So, in the parlance of improvisation, when two people are making something out of nothing, you get nowhere if they're saying no. And actually, we don't think you get very far by just saying yes. You say yes and uh, you affirm and contribute, and that allows you to explore and heighten. Uh, so, I'm wondering in your life, do you have a, a yes and story for us? So, uh, so I think of lots of times where I'm invited to do something. Mm-hmm. So it might be a consulting engagement, a speaking engagement. Um, and, um, and, and there's something about the invitation that doesn't work for me. So yeah. if I had to say yes or no, I would say no. And I think highlighting what's in your book and what you're suggesting um, by the question, often a much better answer than no is to say, Yes, but I need to change one aspect of what you requested. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. often there's a creative solution that emerges um, when you simply restate the proposal that the other side made that you don't want to say yes to mm-hmm. in a way that says yes, but you basically change a provision. And yeah. I think that that ends up 
um, being an effective solution. I, I remember back to uh, my friends at Car Talk for for yeah. your podcast listeners who are friends of Quick and Clack, the Tappet Brothers mm-hmm. on NPR, um, that um, that they all they made a habit. Um, uh, one would ask the question, "Would you go with A or B?" And the answer was always C. Yes. And, and you could think of yes and as yeah, really right. a C. So, it, so while the question might be no or yes or no, in fact, yes, but changing something um, is in fact creating a third option. And I think that that's a great way to go through life, rather than assuming that your options are as limited as yes or no. Yeah, and you you could even not use the bug. You could use the again, yes, and to do this, I need blah 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 blah, and that and that, and that keeps it all very positive. And it's like I'm not, you know, because so many keeps, people say yes, and, like yes, and don't mean it too. You you can tell you can tell the language is just a you know we use for explanation, but it is that attitude of going in a room and you know. Uh, we often say you replace blame with curiosity. You're like, okay, let me just be curious in this moment and see if there's an opportunity there. And oftentimes there is. Yeah. So I remember I once had um, a consulting client who had agreed to pay me a fixed sum for a two-day project, mm-hmm. um, a two-day training program. And after we, I thought, had a verbal agreement, nothing was in writing, yeah. um, the, the HR person who had hired me um, call back and saying, I, we, I can't follow through on, on our agreement um, because if not enough people sign up within the company for your course, um, then um, my profit center would lose money and I can't risk that. Mm-hmm. And I said, so how many people are you expecting? And she said 60. I said, and it's a problem for you if only 50 show up. She said, exactly. I said, well, so why don't you pay me on a per head basis Mm-hmm. Where I break even at 60. And that way, if too few people show up, I eat the cost rather than you. And she said, you'd really do that. And I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So rather than sort of do we go with the project, yes or no, yeah, we can identify alternative strategies that make a lot more sense. So I think a lot of what we see in the negotiation literature is really yeah. a form of yes and how do we find creative solutions rather than simple compromises on do you give in or not? Absolutely. That, that That's actually the way that all this started in my world was uh, seeing a book uh, about improv and negotiation on a bookshelf when I was on book tour with with my book and, and recognizing that there's so much more we could be doing in different kinds of fields because every we no one is born with a script and we're all making this up. And it's like, oh, we're experts in that. So if we can combine with, say, social scientists or neuroscientists or positive psychologists, there, there might be kind of cool areas to explore, which is also how I ended up uh, being introduced to your work when I got into that ethics stuff and our mutual friend, Heather Crusoe says, you got to read uh, uh, Max. And that was, that was my introduction. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm a big fan of Heather's as well. Um, so um, if I could, but um, yeah. since this is taping and you can edit later, um, yeah. can I read the last paragraph of my book? I would love that. Um, which, which might be useful and you can perhaps add in your que- the question to no, lead no, no, to we, it later. We, we I, would, I would love you to do that. Okay. I hope that if I had had access in 2011 to the knowledge I have now about complicity, that I would have done more to stop the data fraud described in Chapter 7. The data fraud story highlights a final message for avoiding complicity. When something is wrong, we must not accept the easiest explanation. We need to be persistent until we fully understand what's going on. 
Sometimes this puts our relationships at risk. Sometimes it will be uncomfortable, but it's the ethical thing to do. Brilliant. The book is called Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop. Max Baseman, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kelly. It's been an honor. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive